Well, good morning, River City. It's good to be with you again this morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. Uh, special welcome as well to, uh, if you're new or visiting with us, uh, we're glad to have you with us. We'd love to get to know you. We'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. Uh, excited as well to uh, invite you into our new sermon series this spring and summer. We're going to be taking a look at a bunch of different passages in the Old Testament together. Some you've probably heard of, some you probably haven't. Uh, and we're going to be highlighting how all of those passages uh, aren't ultimately about us and what we're supposed to be doing or who we're supposed to be like or not like, uh, but instead all of them are meant to point us towards the person and the work of Jesus. And we saw last week how the idea that the, the whole Bible, including the Old Testament, not just the New, uh, is really about pointing us towards Jesus and the gospel. That's not something I came up with, not something some real, real smart, real inventive pastor or theologian came up with, but rather, like we saw last week, that idea comes from Jesus himself. We saw in John chapter 5 how he told the religious leaders that the Old Testament scriptures, that they testify about him. And, and we saw especially that Moses specifically wrote about him. And we saw as well in Luke 24 how after Jesus' resurrection, he explains to the disciples what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. And so Jesus is at the heart of every page of the Bible. It all points to him, to who he is, to all he would do for us. And just to be clear, though, even though our series is called Jesus on Every Page, um, it's not like Jesus' name is actually on every page, right? And we're also, we're not talking about like a Nick Cage national treasure type situation where there's like an invisible map to the gospel, like hidden in like lemon ink on the back of the pages or something like that. That's, that's not what we're talking about either. Instead, we, we talk talked last week about how there's like at least eight really non-secretive ways that all the stories and all the prophecies and all the poetry and all the laws, they, they point us towards the person and the work of Jesus. They, they present us with problems that only Jesus can solve, and they offer us promises that only Christ can fulfill. They, they show us needs that only Jesus can meet in our lives. They they, they, they help, uh, we see patterns and themes appearing over and over that, that, that come to resolution in Christ. We see stories throughout the Old Testament that only find their conclusion in Jesus. We see people that prefigure an aspect of who Christ will be or what he will do for his people, or, or they show the exact opposite of those things. We see events and symbols that, that show us what Jesus will be like or what he will do, and we even get a few glimpses of of, of Jesus himself appearing in the form of the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. And so there's, there's a bunch of different ways we're going to walk through this summer showing you how Jesus and the gospel is really at the heart of the Old Testament. And as we begin our series this morning, uh, we're actually going to see a few of those different pointers towards Jesus. And I was wrestling this week with exactly where to start our series, but in the end, I kind of figured the best place to start is usually the beginning, or near the beginning at least. And so uh, with that in mind, this morning we're going to be taking a look at, at a passage in Genesis chapter 4 and the, the story of two brothers, the first brothers, right? Cain and Abel. And in Genesis 3, what, what you see happening is that the sin enters the world when Adam and Eve reject God's good rule and authority, and they disobey him. And that not only ruins their relationship with him and with one another, but with creation itself. And, and what we see happening in chapter 4 with their sons, Cain and Abel, is that, is that the destruction that sin causes wasn't done, it wasn't finished with Adam and Eve. 
See, sin keeps growing like a disease that seems unstoppable. Things just keep getting worse and worse and worse. You know, what we're going to see in our passage this morning is that in the midst of all sin's destructive spread, there is still a glimmer of hope that breaks through all of the darkness. Right? Sin is not done wreaking havoc in the world, but God's not done either. And where Adam's and Eve's sons failed, we're going to see a glimmer of the promise that God's own son will come. And where they failed, he won't. And so instead of being consumed by the spread of sin, we're going to see how God's own son gets foreshadowed in this picture. The kind of son who won't just put a stop to sin's spread, but who reverses its course altogether. And so even a story that's full of anger and jealousy and murder can actually be a story that's full of good news for you and for me this morning, if we'll see it's ultimately about pointing us towards Jesus. Now, I realize that uh, that little intro, some of you are like, wow, Brandon, like, I realize you said we're going to get to Jesus in the end, but like, that seems a bit dark for Mother's Day, right? Like, uh, bold choice on that one, right? Uh, and the truth is, you're probably right, right? Uh, probably right, that is. But I, I guess I just figured, like, there are zero mothers ever who are under the delusion that their children aren't sinners, right? Like, no, no mom is like, oh yeah, my, sin, my, my kids are perfect, right? Uh, and parenting is hard. And yet, no matter how challenging your parenting situation is, it hasn't got this bad, right? Like, your kids might want to kill each other, but they haven't done it yet, right? And so there's at least a little bit of encouragement there for you. Besides, uh, there's a bunch of great baby names in the passage this morning if you're looking for some ideas. And so really, uh, what we have in Genesis 4 is the, it's the quintessential Mother's Day passage, right? And uh, I'm sticking to that story, okay? So um, in all seriousness, though, I can't wait to show you how even a passage like this one that is full of sin and its darkness and its effects in our lives and in our world, it actually points us to the hope that we have in Jesus and the hope that he's going to be the one who overcomes the destructive power of sin in our own lives and he's the one who overcomes it in the lives of our kids as well. And so I can't wait to show you how even in the midst of the darkness, Jesus is the hero of the story and leaves us longing for him and hoping for him. So that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into God's word, see if we can't see Jesus on every page. God, thanks so much for you. We're grateful for your word this morning, and we're grateful to get to come together this Mother's Day to remember uh, Jesus, you, the true son. And so in the midst of our parenting, in the midst of our lives, in the midst of all that we have to bring this morning, uh, God, we come most of all needing you and needing your son, Jesus. And so we pray as we study, might you show him to us. And might the good news of the gospel be good news for us this morning, wherever we're at. We're grateful, Jesus, for you. Thanks that you want to meet us in your word, that you want to empower our time together so that it might bring joy in our hearts and our lives and it might empower us to live for your glory. And so we pray you do all of that. Amen. Well, we're going to begin, like I said, we're in, this morning in Genesis chapter 4. It reads this way. And Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. And so Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? 
Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Well, I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You'll be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence. I'll be a a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. The Lord said to him, not so. For anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. The Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. And so Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. And Cain was then building a city and named it after his son Enoch. And to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad was the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael was the father of Methujael, and Methujael was the father of Lamech. And Lamech married two women, one named Ada and the other named Zillah. And Ada gave birth to Jabal, who was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played strings, instruments, and pipes. And Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. And Tubal-Cain's sister was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words, for I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son, and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Like I said in the beginning, the, the heart of our passage this morning, we, we're going to see sin spreading into the world. As we study this morning, there's three, three things the passage shows us about the spread of sin. And the first, is, the first thing that we see is where sin spreads. See, Genesis 3, passage right before ours this morning, it ends with this glimmer of hope that even in the face of sin that's brought all this destruction into the world, that, that one day... There's going to be an offspring of Adam and Eve, uh, someone from their line who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to defeat Satan and sin and death and reverse the curse of sin. And and chapter 4 begins by telling us about the line of Adam and Eve and their offspring. And and yet it becomes very clear very quickly is that this offspring is not the one who's going to bring an end to sin. See, we don't see sin ending with Cain or with Abel in Genesis 4. Instead, we see it spreading and it spreads in these two different directions. The first is, is that it spreads outward. In, in chapter 3, sin infiltrates humanity. And, and yet in chapter 4, we see it spreading from individuals into families. Sin spreads from Adam and Eve to their own son, Cain, who ends up murdering his brother, Abel. And I'm sure as parents themselves, one of the things you find as a, as a parent is that seeing your kids sin in, in and of itself is already hard. But when you see that it's the result of your own sin, 
Like that's even, that's even harder. I'm sure Adam and Eve were wrestling with the weightiness of that reality. And yet the outward spread of sin doesn't just stop at families. In verses 17 through 24, we, we see that the Bible traces the spread of sin through the line of Cain from families to, to whole societies. And it just continues on from there. And we, we see this outward spread of sin in our, words, in our world still today. You see, yes, there are glimmers of hope, and God is certainly at work in our world. But while the world might be looking more presentable on the outside, what we see is that the world is not getting better and better, but it's one that's getting sicker and sicker. Right? There's not more, there is more slavery today than there ever has been before in any point in history. It just looks a little different and takes a different form. There's a gap between the rich and the poor, between those who are incredibly in poverty, and that gap is not shrinking, it's ever widening. The pursuit of personal autonomy has not led to absolute freedom for people. It's just led to different forms of oppression. See, and that's because the outward spread of sin is merely a symptom of the other direction we see sin spreading in the passage. See, Genesis 4 shows us not just the outward spread of sin, but it shows us the inward spread of it as well. You see, the, the spread of sin, it doesn't just get wider. See, it happens as it gets deeper and deeper. It's digging its way into the hearts of humanity. The passage begins, we see, with this, with this worship service. And Cain and Abel, they're, they're both bringing offerings to God, but, but they get very, these very different responses from him. And the passage says that the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but not so with Cain. And there have been all kinds of attempts over the years by commentators and all kinds of people to answer the question about why that's the case. Why does the God respond so differently here? And most of them try to find something about the offering itself that's the problem, whether it's the, the type of offering or maybe the quality of the offering. And Abel brought an animal sacrifice and, and Cain brought vegetables. And I mean, if I'm honest, if I'm God, I know which one I prefer, right? Like I'm all in on steaks, right? Like that seems just objectively better, right? But that, that's not what's going on here. That was a good joke, people. Like, you gotta, like, <laughs> that was good, okay? Anyways, it's not, they're not gonna get better from here, right? So, so just buckle up. But that's, that's not what's going on here, right? See, the Hebrew word that's used for offering here, it doesn't refer to the kind of sacrificial offering we see later on in, in the Old Testament. It doesn't have to do with forgiveness of sin. Instead, the word that's here, it's used as the kind of offering that's, that's presented as this dedication offering. It's a gift offering. And what we see later in Leviticus is that this type of offering, it's, it's just you, that you bring what you have. Verse 2, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And so we see them both bringing the fruits of their labor to God. And so it's not about the type or the quality of the offering they bring. Something else is going on here. See, the real problem with Cain's offering is the heart behind it. And that gets revealed in how Cain responds to God and to Abel. See, Cain's response to God's favor towards Abel and not him is this seething anger. See, a lot of times we, we look at anger as this objective problem that we need to deal with. But the reality is that the Bible talks a lot more about anger as a symptom. Right? It's something that clues us into something deeper in our hearts that's going on. And the truth is, is that there are few things that do a better job at revealing the, the things going on in our heart than our anger. 
there are few things that reveal the truth about our hearts better than our anger. One author puts it this way. He says, anger is our response to whatever endangers something that we love. See, when the thing that we love is kept from us or taken from us, we find that our response is often anger. And anger itself isn't wrong. Jesus got angry, and so anger's not the problem. The problem is that what our anger reveals is that the thing that we really love most isn't God, but rather it's someone or something else. And we see Cain's anger reveals that his offering to God, that it wasn't worship, it was just bribery. See, what Cain wants most is not God, but it's God's favor, and it's God's blessings, and it's God's acceptance, and God sees right through Cain's messed up motives. In contrast, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 and 6, it tells us about Abel's offering. It says, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. For without faith, it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. You see, Abel was seeking God himself. But Cain was seeking God's gifts. See, one is worship. The other looks like worship, but in reality, it's just bribery. You see, sin is twisting humanity's good desires for God into something altogether different. And we see sin spreading deeper and deeper inward, not just in Cain's distorted desires, but you see it happening in the fact that Cain refuses to even admit that that's the problem. In Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin, their guilt is imminently, it's like imminently ready to them. They see it, they sense it, they respond to it. And yet, what happens here is that Cain cannot see, or he simply refuses to see, that his own sinful desires are the real problem. And he, instead, he blames his brother. And where Adam and Eve, like I said, were immediately convicted of their sin, Cain refuses to acknowledge it. And later, his descendant Lamech, at the end of the passage, he's actually boasting in his sin. I killed a guy because he, he annoyed me. I killed a guy just because he looked at me wrong, because he, he offended me. See, that leads us to the second thing the passage shows us about the spread of sin. It doesn't just show us where sin spreads. The passage also helps us to see how sin spreads. Verse 7, God comes to Cain in the midst of his anger before he kills his brother, and God warns Cain about the dangerous spread of sin in two ways. He, he tells him that sin is crouching at your door, that it desires to have you. See, God tells Cain that the first way that sin spreads is, is it does it by crouching. God's warning Cain, sin is lurking at your door. It's ready to pounce on you. I don't know about you, but there's a, there's a YouTube channel that my kids and I like to watch. Uh, oftentimes it's called The Lion Whisperer. And basically it's this dude who apparently has raised lions since they were infants or something. And he just lives in Af South Africa. And basically most of the videos are about him kind of wandering out in their reservation with the lions. And they just kind of wandering out together, and you're like, half of you are like, that's cool. And the other half of you is like, that guy's going to die for sure one day, right? Um, but what happens in almost all the videos as they're wandering is the, the lions, they're always on the hunt for something. And almost invariably in all the videos, what happens is they'll be out for a walk, and then suddenly the lions will just crouch. And you, where once you could see them clearly visible, they're just like, they blend into the grass, they get low, and you, it's like they become invisible. 
What are they doing, right? They're, they're trying to hide themselves and they're trying to be smaller than they really are so that their prey will either underestimate the danger they are in or overlook it entirely. See, and sin does the same thing to us all the time. Tells us, right, that, that pride issue you keep wrestling with, that's not that big a deal. Right, that comfort idol you keep pursuing, it's not really hurting anybody else. Right, that was just one little lie with my boss. It was just one video I shouldn't have watched. It was, I have the right to be angry about whatever this thing is. See, that's sin crouching. It's, it's hiding. It's hoping we'll underestimate the danger that we are in or just overlook the, the danger altogether. And so sin is hiding itself from Cain. And instead of seeing his own sinful desires as the problem, he sees Abel, his brother, as the problem. And in his anger and his jealousy, he gets rid of what he thinks the problem is and he falls headfirst into the trap of sin. And it has him, just like God warned him it was trying to do. See, the, the dangerous nature of the spread of sin isn't just that it hides itself from us, that it conceals the significance of itself, but that it does that because it wants to consume you. It's not just deceptive, it is consuming sin. Like the lion who lays in wait until just the right moment, and then wham! All of a sudden, it's over for the prey. See, Cain's real problem was that he wanted God's blessings and not God, and he allowed his jealous anger to consume him. See, but sin wasn't done with Cain once he murdered his brother. That was just the beginning of the, the devouring nature of sin. One pastor puts it this way. He says, sin is not done with you after you are done with it. C.S. Lewis echoed that reality when he, when he wrote this. He said, at first the Nazis killed the Jews because they hated them. Then they hated the Jews because they had killed them. You see, when you, when you are consumed by anger, right, you have to stay angry in order to justify your actions towards others. And so even when you feel like you're done with sin, sin is never done with you. It's consuming. And you see this in, in Cain's response to, his God, to God's questions about his brother. Right, God asked Cain, where, where is your brother? And it's not like God was unaware of what was going on. Right? It's not like God's like, ah, I lost track of him. Right? I couldn't keep, couldn't keep track. Too many people. Right? God's question is, instead, it's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not trying to get Abel's location. God's question is meant as an offer, this invitation to, to Cain that he might repent, that he might acknowledge his sin, and that he might turn from it. See, but Cain's response is just indignant. Right? He says, am I my brother's keeper? I'm not responsible for him. See, sin is still consuming him. The passage, if we're honest, right, it's It's dark. We see sin spreading inward and outward. It's going deeper. It's reaching farther. It only seems to get worse as you follow Cain's line to Lamech. But the passage doesn't end with sin. and doesn't end with Cain. And it doesn't end with Lamech. Instead, it ends with more offspring from Adam and Eve. Verse 25 tells us about another son God granted to them. See, Cain was not the one who would bring an end to sin. And nor was Abel. And yet God's promises had not failed. 
because chapter 4 ends with a glimmer of hope in the line of Seth, whose sons would call on the name of the Lord instead of out against it. And when you follow that flickering light back to its source, what you see is the true light that lights up all the darkness. You see, the only one, the real son, the only son who is going to be able to stop the spread of sin. So when you follow the line of Seth, you, you get to Noah and Abraham and eventually to King David himself. And at the end of King David's line is not just more kings, it's the king of kings. It's Jesus himself. And oh, how we need him to be at the end of that line. See, in verse 7, God tells Cain, if you'll do what is right, then you'll be accepted. See, the problem is, is that it's so easy for us to read passages like this and just think, okay, right, this seems clear. Be like Abel, not like Cain, right? Do the good thing, don't do the bad thing, right? Like, I just gotta, I gotta go down this road and not this road. And just spoiler alert, if that's all this passage is, if it's just an example of who you need to be like and bad examples you need to avoid, it's just a passage that crushes you because you and I are just like Cain. And maybe you haven't murdered your brother, but Jesus says when you hate people, it's the same. And all of us, we fall prey to the crouching, devouring reality of sin. See, Cain didn't do what was right, and neither do we. And Cain didn't master sin as God warned him that he needed to, and neither do we. But the good news is, is that Jesus did for you. You see, he always did what was right. He mastered sin, and he did it for us on our behalf. And so it's through him that we're both accepted by God, and we're also empowered to live the kind of lives that overcome sin and master it, put it to death in us. See, in the Abel's blood, it cried out to God, God tells Cain, that his brother's blood is crying out to him. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, it tells us that Jesus' blood cries out to God as well. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus' blood, it speaks a better word than Abel's does. See, the blood of Abel cried out to God for justice. And yet the blood of Jesus cries out to God for mercy and forgiveness. When pastor writes it this way, he says, Jesus is the true and better Abel who though innocently slain has blood now that cries out not for our condemnation, but instead for our acquittal. For in Christ God brings about both justice and forgiveness, and it's in his name and by his power that we can overcome sin as he did. See, the passage, it points us. It points us beyond the overwhelming spread of sin it points us beyond it to the one who would stop its spread. More than that, it points us to the one who will reverse the curse of sin itself. See, the Bible tells us that in Jesus, we're not just forgiven, but we're made new. That God replaces our sin-sick hearts with hearts that are new and clean, with ones that love to long to love and to serve and to follow him. And so we're not just forgiven, but we're made new because of Jesus, the true and better son, the one whose blood cries out not for justice, but for forgiveness. 
Saying what happens is when you see that this passage is not ultimately about you and what you have to do, but instead it points you towards Jesus and the strength and the power that he gives you to live the way God calls you to and to be the people God's made you to do. What happens is that it wells up in you a love for him and a longing to live for him instead of for yourself. And it invites us to ask the question, as individuals and as parents, right, in view of the true and better son, how do we master sin instead of being mastered by it? And how do we help our kids to do the same? I think first the thing that we need to do is we need to see the reality of our sin. Like we talked about earlier, God asked Cain the question that we need to ask ourselves. He asked him, why are you so angry? See, our anger, again, it reveals the things that we truly love. And when those things are kept from us or taken from us, anger is this emotion that flows out of our hearts. But the Bible doesn't talk about anger as the primary problem. It treats it like a symptom. And so the question what we might need to ask is, what the symptom of anger, what is it revealing about what's wrong in your heart? What is it that you have loved more than God? What is it that is being kept from you that you long for so deeply more than him? See, like Cain, we, want, we often want the gifts and not the giver. And so we have to repent of the things that we love and that we long for more than God. And we have to be honest with God that we need to repent not just of loving the wrong things, but of trying to bribe him with our lives to give us the stuff we're after instead of pursuing him. So we need to see the reality of our sin, but more than that, we need to see and we need to help our kids see as well the danger of our sin. So often we tend to look at sin as this problem that needs to be managed. But the Bible says that sin is not a problem that can be managed. It's either kill or be killed with it. There are no other options. You can't domesticate sin. We have to have an attitude of quitting sin, of being done with it, of, of no longer tolerating it, tolerating it. And that's never easy and rarely cheap, but it is always worth it. And the only way we're going to be able to see the true danger of our sin and show that to our kids, and the only way we're going to be able to see what's underneath our sin and the false loves, the disordered loves of our heart, the only way we're going to be able to reject that stuff, not motivated by guilt and shame, but motivated by love, is when you see Jesus meeting you, you see the God who meets you in the midst of your sin, a God who comes to Cain and who offers him a chance to repent that Cain doesn't deserve. And when you see that even when Cain is indignant, we see a God who instead of allowing Cain to get what he deserved, marks him. God marks Cain so that nobody will kill him and take their own vengeance on him. And in doing that, what God's doing is he's, he is saying to Cain, I'm giving you time. He's keeping Cain from getting what his sin deserves. He's giving him time to choose repentance and God does the same thing for you and I, even in the midst of our ignorant, rebellious sin. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes this. He says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 
see, just like he did for Cain, God is giving you and I time. Time to turn from sin, to see the reality of it, to see the danger of it, and to see the God who meets us in it so we might turn from it altogether. See, guilt can't ever drive out sin. Only Jesus can. And it's a love for the God who meets us in the midst of our sin. Not when we had our stuff together, not when we had cleaned ourselves up enough, but a God who meets us in the midst of our sin. That's the one thing that can drive out sin in our lives and in the lives of our kids. And so as parents... As we think about dedicating children today, as we think about celebrating mothers, as we think about the call that God's given us as a community to speak the words of life and the good news of the gospel into the children in our church all around us, the invitation is that we might help them to see the reality of sin and the danger of it, but more than any of it, that we might help them to see the goodness of a God who meets them in the midst of their sin with an offer of life and an invitation towards repentance. Because that's the one thing that transforms our hearts. Rule keeping can't do it. Example following just crushes you. But the good news of the gospel, it gives us new life and new power. And it only comes when you see the God who meets you in your sin like he met Cain. See, and it's Jesus the God who comes for us in the midst of our sin. That's what we're remembering and celebrating every week when we take communion together. Communion, it doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't change your status and your standing with him just like the offering that Cain and Abel couldn't do. It, instead, it's an opportunity for us to remember Jesus' body and his blood broken and shed for us that cry out a better word, not for calling for justice, but calling for mercy. And so if you put your trust in Jesus to be the one who has paid the penalty for your sin, the true and better son who can halt its spread in your life and reverse its course in you, or you do for the first time this morning, then during our time of worship, I'd encourage you, go back and take communion. Dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of who he is and all that he has done for you that you could not do for yourself. But if you're here this morning, you're still figuring out who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. And if that's something you want to do in the first place, then I just want you to know you're welcome here. But I want to encourage you, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that says, Jesus, you are all I need. So communion might not be right for you this morning, but Jesus is and River City is. And we'd love to help you get to know him. And so wherever you're at this morning, as we celebrate communion, as we remember the gospel together in song, I want to encourage you, talk with God. Ask him to help you to see by his grace the reality of your sin, not just the stuff that's on the surface. Ask him to help you to see the disordered loves in your heart, the things you love more than him that are being kept from you or taken from you that are resulting in anger. Ask him to help you to see what's underneath it. More than that, ask him to help you see the dangerous reality of sin, that it always brings death and destruction, that it cannot be managed, it cannot be, it cannot be handled, it must be rejected and destroyed. 
But in the midst of all of that, ask him to show you his love for you in Jesus. The true and better son. Ask him to show you that how he meets, like he met Cain in the midst of his sin with an invitation towards repentance, that he meets you in the same. Not to hold your sin over you, but instead to set you free from it. Ask him to do that for you. Ask him to help you to do that with your kids and with the kids in our church. Ask him to help you to do it for your good and for his glory. And so that we might be a people who love him and live for him instead of ourselves. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for you. We are thankful that you are the true and better son, the God who meets us in the midst of our sin, who has the power not just to do what is right and to halt the spread of sin, but to reverse the course of sin in our world, in our hearts, in our lives, and in our histories. And so Jesus, help us to see you as the point of all the stories. God, I'm so grateful that this story is not just an example of who to be like and who to avoid. We see this. We want to be like Abel, God. We want to seek you. But more than all of it, Jesus, we need you to... We are so grateful that the story points us to a God who does it for us and whose love for us in the midst of our inability, in the midst of our sin, that that's the thing that empowers us to pursue you more than anything else. So we need you for all of it. Might you help us to see the beauty of Jesus on the pages of Genesis 4 and live for his glory and not our own, we pray. Amen.